This podcast is brought to you by the Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation. Are you looking to support your memory and optimize your quality of life? Develop a healthy brain for brighter days at PNI's Lifestyle Program, available virtually and in person. Reserve your spot today. Visit PacificLifestyle.org to learn more. The Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Dr. David Merrill is a psychiatrist who specializes in working with older adults. He is a PhD in the neurobiology of aging, and he directs PNI's Brain Health Center. Dr. Karen Miller has a PhD in geropsychology, the psychology of older people. She's the senior director of PNI's Brain Wellness and Lifestyle Program, where she works alongside Molly Raposo, a registered dietitian nutritionist. These three experts collaborate to help older people stave off the ravages of dementia by focusing on diet, exercise, and cognitive training. Their work is crucial because, despite concerted efforts to develop a drug to treat Alzheimer's, there just isn't any medication that can keep our brains in tip-top shape as we age. What we have are some behaviors that are proven to protect the brain from premature dysfunction. Listen to this podcast to learn what our all-star team knows about the best strategies. Let's start with you, Karen Miller. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Miller. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. I've been working in the past three decades in the area of cognition, including cognitive training and prevention for Alzheimer's disease. One of my interests is identifying preclinical markers or information that might tell us that you're at risk for declining. And then we use that information to help prevent cognitive decline. So one of my specialties is memory training And I'm excited to tell you a little bit later about some of the programs we've created to help people with normal aging uh, memory complaints. Fantastic. Molly Raposo. Hi, Um, I'm the senior nutrition and health educator for the foundation. My background is um, in dietetics. I'm a dietitian and I have a lot of experience with brain health coaching for clinical trials, as well as other clinic patients. Um, and I am currently, I've undergone a lot of training and I do memory training with folks as well. And I'm making curriculums. And David Merrill. Thank you, Anthony. Yes. So I'm Dr. Dave Merrill. I'm an adult and older adult psychiatrist uh, by training. I also have a neuroscience PhD in the neurobiology of aging. And I'm the director of the Brain Health Center. And I had the pleasure and joy of having both Dr. Miller and Molly, uh, join me in our efforts to um, improve people's uh, brain health as they're aging. Fantastic. You know, when you read the popular press these days, you must see your work everywhere because it seems to me to be the age of brain training, um, brain enhancement. Um, is it, I, it feels like it's a, there's a revolution here or, or I'm just catching on to it. Which is it? <laughs> I think it's a very popular topic, right? Because we have our um, baby boomers aging and they want to age well. 
right? So just as they care about their looks and their bank account and their hobbies and their relationships, they really care about their brain. And so I think you are seeing it more and more, Anthony, when you look in the, the media or you look at magazines or you hear it on the news every night, there's something new coming out constantly about information or what you can do next. Yeah. I mean, like the New York Times, I think half the New York Times is about, you know, the well section is all about brain training and brain health and all these things we should be doing. And I got to tell you, I find it all very helpful. And I feel like I have a jump on things because I talk to you all regularly. What sort of concerns bring people to you uh, at PNI? Maybe we should talk. Uh, we should ask um, Molly. Well, one thing we see quite a bit are people who saw their parents or in-laws have dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So they really want to be proactive and do everything that they can to not go down the same road. And I think another reason we're seeing a lot of information about lifestyle recommendations is because pharmaceuticals haven't given us the solutions that we're looking for. Um, talk a little more about that. What, what, where are they falling short? Well, we don't see a cure at this time, right? Right, right. At all. There's, there's, yeah, there's just, there's nothing really. I mean, I think I'd like our medical expert to step in here, but yeah, I don't think that we see a cure and we do know that lifestyle behaviors make a huge impact. Everything from exercise, nutrition, stress management, sleep, all these pieces are really important in terms of fighting inflammation and supporting um, us as we age. Well, I was going to say, yes. And um, I was going to ask Dr. Merrill, I think we are a society where we expect uh, pills to do a lot for us. And this is a case where there really isn't anything yet. Is that correct? Well, correct. And Molly's right that, you know, for, for better, or for worse, there's a lot of conditions, uh, general health conditions where, where we have basically found a, a silver bullet or, you know, magic pill that, that really fixes what's going on. You think of infectious diseases with antibiotics, um, even within neurodegenerative disorders, I mean, the, the, the model of Parkinson's disease, where we figured out to use L-DOPA, really transformed that and, and really was a, you know, obviously there's still shortcomings to the, the treatments with L-DOPA for Parkinson's, but trying to apply that model to Alzheimer's has failed miserably. Um, in the 1980s, we tried to use uh, cholinesterase inhibitors to target acetylcholine in the Alzheimer's brain. And we find that those drugs, so there's there's several approved medications for attention-related uh, symptoms with Alzheimer's, but those, those treat symptoms, and it's only a mild benefit, and some patients don't even notice a benefit with those prescription medications. So we're, we're really still at a point where we're trying to understand what can we do to slow down Alzheimer's, and, and like Molly was saying, how can we prevent uh, the new generations that are aging right now from developing Alzheimer's. Mm, and that, so that's what you all are working on day after day. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dr. Miller, tell us a little bit about what is, um, what, you, what is most exciting to you right now in terms of what we should all be doing? Absolutely. Well, I think it goes along the lines of what you've already said is that People are expecting to age better, right? They've seen maybe their parents go through cognitive decline. They're, they're worried for themselves. They're also often at the top of their own, you know, professional career and they want to remain there. 
So they're coming to Dr. Merrill, myself, Molly, and they want to know what can they do right now, right, um, to have better longstanding brain health. And they're very motivated. So they're willing to improve their exercise. They want uh, more information on nutrition where Molly is, you know, very much an expert and able to guide them. They're also willing to try what we call novel learning or cognitive training. Right. So once we explain to them the opportunities that we could actually exercise the memory center, the hippocampus, because they're already, let's say, an expert in their field and they may be well read, they may be well traveled, they may have several exciting hobbies, but they are good at all those things. So now we have to introduce something that will be novel and will stimulate their brains um, so that it's sort of like going back to college right, in where they're going to have a flood of new learning. And so Molly and myself, we're creating curriculum and we're teaching them these techniques to have better short-term memory right now in order to give them an opportunity and a chance to continue to have better long-term memory as mm. they age. You know, um, a few years ago, I decided it would be helpful to me to try to learn how to play the drums. Yes. Because it's new completely new. I am not a musical person. I still can't play the drums very well, but it definitely feels like it opened up some, you know, new acreage or something. Exactly. And I love that word acreage, right? Like, so when you, you kind of stumble upon, like, I like to say real estate, right? Like, how are you going to preserve your real estate or expand your real estate of your memory capacity? And that is through novel learning, learning a new musical instrument is a great way to um, actually practice short-term memory skills because you're taking in something brand new, learning a new language or picking up an old language, right? Like, so mm. some of our um, clients, they maybe studied French for 10 years and now they've sort of lost those skills. They'll return to studying French. Maybe they'll get a private tutor or take a class or do Duolingo, that can be very helpful because this is again, engaging in a novel learning environment. Or in some cases, Molly and I have particular clients who um, have already some short-term memory loss. So they need some very specific techniques of how to encode new information, like how to learn people's names mm. or how to retain the important details from a story, right? So if you and your partner are sharing information about work or travel, how can you hang on to those details? So we want to give them techniques so that they are able to retain new information. Molly, can you tell us what, maybe give us an example of one of those techniques um, from said the uh, podcast host who's 57? <laughs> <laughs> sure, so one of the basic elements is attention and visualization. So if we're not paying attention, it's not going in in the first place. How will we be able to recall that? So one thing I really love working with people on is that sensory awareness, really paying attention to your surroundings, being in the moment. So what do you hear? What do you see? What do you feel? Do you smell something? Can you touch something? And I feel like that's a really good link to meditation and stress management. So it's really the whole gamut. So paying attention, visualizing, is really the first step. And that takes, I mean, that's takes work. Yes. Yes. I mean, we, we are so, I, I mean, we're so distracted, right? We always have, you know, a podcast or the radio in our ears and you know what I, 
our defense, our attention is so divided or diffused. Mm-hmm. We <laughs> have to be intentional about Sorry? it. Yeah. We have to be intentional about it. Like Dr. Merrill brought a new staff member to one of our meetings and her name was Brandy, right? So well, I have to t- stop, pause and think, okay, how am I going to remember this woman's name, right? Because I already know everybody else, but this is a new member. And it's just that taking that pause in that moment to think about like what Molly said is paying attention to the name. And then I had to create a visualization for her name, right? So I might imagine this new staff member named Brandy bringing a bottle of Brandy and sharing it with everyone who she's joining the team. But by just taking those extra 60 seconds, now I can remember her name, even though I only met her once. Yeah, right, right. That makes sense. Um, you know, years ago, I tried, I, I did, I succeeded in memorizing the periodic table mm-hmm. using a memory palace. Mm-hmm. You've heard of that? Yes, yes, yes you have. Yeah. Of course, you have. You maybe invented it. Um, <laughs> um, maybe Dr. Merrill could tell us why that works. Well, uh, so you're taking something familiar and then you're layering on top of it new ideas, new thoughts, things that you're trying to remember. So, uh, I mean, I think, Karen, you give lectures about the memory palace. I do. Oh, OK. I got, got so the wrong the memory person. palace is actually <laughs> the oldest memory technique known to mankind. It was created in the Roman and uh, by the Romans and the Greeks. And it's actually documented as a memory strategy at that time period. And then in our modern day, we have um, continued to adapt it. And it actually is linked to what Molly said originally about attention and visualization. So when you want to memorize something new, you place it in a familiar place or palace, and then you're able to later recall that information. So let's say that Molly tells me she likes daisies and her birthday's coming up. And if my memory place or palace is my blue couch, I imagine Molly laying on my blue couch with bundles of daisies. And then if I can encode that, uh, two weeks from now, I could send her daisies for her birthday. Perfect. Does this have something to do with us being visual creatures? Um, that's what I remember from reading these this the book that I used to do this. Yes. So the thing is, is we spend a lot of our time talking and listening, right? But we don't always take the extra step to visualize what we're hearing. But if we take that extra step to visualize what we're hearing, then we're using more of our brain, more of our real estate to actually encode the new information. Okay. Okay. So that's why these things work. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, at a different podcast, Dr. Merrill and I talked about the hippocampus. Yes. And the importance there. And I wonder if we should just do a quick review of why, what that is and why it's so important to short-term memory. Um, maybe Dr. Merrill could just give us the, give us a, a sketch of that. Yeah, well, uh, sure thing, Anthony. So the, the hippocampus is a, is a, is a well-known, uh, you know, it's, it's written about in the New York times and people talk about, Oh, I got to, train my, my, my brain. I got to work on my memory center, the hippocampus. It's, it's really that central hub where information from all over the brain comes through the hippocampus, is processed, and then sent back out to the rest of the brain in long-term storage. And what happens is both with normal aging and then more so in, in Alzheimer's disease, 
we have a degradation of the hippocampus. And so it's a shrinkage, a, a loss of the connections of the cells in the hippocampus. And so as that brain structure falls apart or goes away, we're no longer able to form new memories. And so to be able to keep forming new memories, we want to do all we can to both keep the hippocampus intact. And if, if, if actually is really to try to strengthen it and to try to strengthen the brain cells, the connections that it makes. And we find that these techniques, these strategies, there's an analogy to, to physical exercise, to brain training. It's like you give your brain a workout the same way if you give your muscles a workout, you'll actually have growth or hypertrophy mm. of the brain cells that are in the hippocampus and the strengthening of the connections. And we could go on and on. There's actually ways to have new brain cells born in the hippocampus. Well, let's uh, no, let's talk about that because yes. that sounds important. And it sounds like you all have sort of a hippocampus boot camp going. <laughs> we do. Exactly. Um, right. I mean, and this is a yep. tiny structure, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. To give you a visual, Anthony, think of it like as, as, as little as a grape, if not littler. And what we mm. don't want is we don't want to raise it. <laughs> we want a plump hippocampus. Right. So right. that's what my clients like to say. We're plumping up our hippocampus. We don't want to raise it. Okay. This should be on a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, this, this says it all, right? Okay. So let's talk about how we do that. Whoever would like to, to jump in. Dr. Merrill's going to talk about new cells. Okay. Well, yeah, right. So, so the key is it's kind of, it's a, it's a use it or lose it phenomenon. Mm. So this is the importance of lifelong learning uh, and, and learning new things to to keep in practice of forming new memories of of creating new new uh, new thoughts and new feelings. Uh, the connection of the thoughts to the feelings is also very important. We know the hippocampus connects intimately to structures like the amygdala and other parts of the emotional brain. That's why that's why so much of our discussions and so much of these topics, it's kind of really meant to be lively and fun. The more emotional that you can make something, the better chance there is of you remembering it. So, you know, we really have a process of working out the brain to grow the hippocampus and, and tie it into the structure and the function of the rest of the brain as well. So, OK, you're saying so. So if you can attach an emotional component, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And that's because you said because of there's a connection between the hippocampus and the amygdala. Right, which I think in popular culture, at least in my brain, and I may be misremembering, the amygdala is like people talk about the fear center or so, or the the seat of fear. In is the that brain. accurate? Uh, I mean, and, and that's one of the functions. And then it's kind of underappreciated that there's also roles in more positive emotion and kind of recollection of events. And that's where Molly was talking about, you know, using all your senses and trying to learn something new, uh, visualizing auditory information, or if you can actually create, uh, you know, smell associations or taste associations that gives the brain even more chance to mm. form strong uh, connections and memories about something new. So using all your sensory uh, modalities to really take something in uh, gives you a better chance of remembering it. We're going to be more likely to remember it if we were fearful or we were happy or joyous. Mm -hmm. If it's just neutral, we're not going to be as likely to remember the information. That's so I can, you know, I'm thinking back on like vacations where exactly. the things I remember are either the really amazing things that happened or 
the time that our flight got canceled in Newark and, you know, we were looking at, you know, a night there or, you know, right. I mean, or was, something really scary happened even sometimes on a vacation. Yeah. Like terrible turbulence, which I happen to hate. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Molly, what, um, what kinds of things do you see? Do you see your patients having success with this? And, and, and what do you think makes makes them more likely to succeed with these strategies? Yeah. So I do see them having success, um, building confidence and learning the techniques that they can use in their everyday lives. And I think one thing that can be really helpful, this talk of the amygdala making it emotional. So when Karen tells a story or she makes an association, they're not boring. So you're seeing this woman, Brandy, starting on the team and she's bringing a bottle of booze and they're having a drink. (laughs) So that kind of made me laugh. That's not something that's typical. You know, I don't think that's really happening. So, (laughs) right. And so the vision of me with the daisies for my birthday, I'm lying on her couch. Well, she's also a psychologist. So that's a little (laughs) funny. And it's not one daisy, it's bundles, right? So I really encourage people because a lot of times kind of the first stage with memory training is, well, I don't do it that way. This is what I do instead, which is a very straightforward approach. Like I say, Make a funny story about these three errands that you have to run so you'll remember them without writing it down. So they will say, well, I'm going to go here, there, and there. And if they can remember in that manner, okay. But if they can't, I say, let's redo it and let's make it funny. Yeah, okay. So uh, Yeah, so if you need to fill up your gas tank and go to the post office and buy a bottle of wine, how about we put wine in the gas tank throw in the letter and light it on fire, you know, something like that, that you're really going to remember it. I like, this is making some sense. This, I get this now. Yeah, when you just recounted uh, Dr. Miller's images of the days, it, it was like, ah, I see. Right. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. We want okay. it exaggerated. We want it fun or exciting or kind of scary, you know, yeah. just pretend scary so that you'll remember it. Okay. This is so helpful. And now a message from our sponsor. The Think Neuro podcast is brought to you by Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org foundation. Can we talk for a minute about sleep? Because I gather that sleep is really important for consolidating memory. Am I getting that right? Correct. Okay. Who, uh, Dr. Merrill's uh, nodding his head. So we're going to ask, ask him, can you tell us the, how important sleep is? I happen to be, a, after 57 years, I've figured out that sleep is really important. It took me that long. Right. I we can save some other people some time. Totally. <laughs> it's, it's better late than never. I mean, sleep is one of these core pillars of healthy brain aging that uh, it, it's common sense, but then how do you actually go about optimizing it, improving it, and, and really prioritizing it? I mean, in general, we're all running on a sleep deficit in this world, whether it's you know up and at them or late into the night with social media and shows and activities. So it, it's really kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, 
what's the purpose of sleep? And, and, and you're right. It's both helping with memory consolidation. It's also when the brain uh, cleanses itself. It's when you clean out all the junk, all the detritus, both, both psychologically, but also physiologically. Huh. Uh, sleep is a time where there's a system in the brain called the glymphatic system that actually clears out the brain. And you need to have deep sleep, solid sleep to have that happen uh, to restore the brain. So it's both, there's a physiologic benefit to uh, sufficient sleep. And there's also the psychologic benefit of kind of consolidating your memories and, and making sure that you're well rested to then be able to lay down new memories again the next day. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's one of these topics that we have entire, you know, classes and courses and, and people do sleep tracking and you can either yeah. go low tech or high tech. It's, it really kind of becomes a hobby to try to uh, optimize your sleep. Yeah. Well, I have my Garmin watch and I love looking at uh, my, my data every morning, you know? Absolutely. Can you just briefly tell us what are the the compounds that accumulate during the day that have to be cleansed at night and, and, and why do they, why do they accumulate? So, you know, for one example, um, you know, in, in Alzheimer's disease, we talk about, you know, amyloid plaques kind of being the enemy, being the bad guy. There are these clumps of misfolded proteins that build up in the brain and can cause havoc in the brain. And it is important to uh, to understand that the, the brain actually releases some of these amyloid uh, proteins in response to health stressors. Mm. Well, one of the things that happens at night when our, our blood sugar gets, you know, we're fasting overnight, we're not eating, our blood sugar goes to baseline, to normal, to low. Our insulin degrading uh, uh, enzymes actually take a turn and they actually degrade amyloid during the night, during sleep. So actually cleaning up some of the amyloid plaques is part of what happens during restorative sleep. And that helps renew the brain, refresh the brain. So you're not having as, as worse a buildup of these extracellular plaques, which, which are really the hallmark pathology of Alzheimer's. Mm. So it, it's, as, it's as foundational as that. You need to get good sleep to help clean out the amyloid in your brain. And it can be a reason to kind of incentivize it for yourself. Like, oh, I got to get my sleep. This will help keep my brain intact and structured. And so you start to structure things to really put it first, like putting, putting rest higher up on the list. Oh, yeah. No, I, since doing this podcast with you all for the last few years, I have become a sleep, you know, nut because I've been listening to you and it's, right. it, it's, it's the magic bullet. I think sleep meditation, we should talk about diet. Does anybody want to jump in on, on diet? So one thing that Dr. Merrill mentioned that I think really curtails well is this kind of overnight fast. So if people, and this really bleeds into sleep. So when people aren't getting good sleep, I like to talk about their evening how does the evening go? When do you have dinner? What happens around, you know, this is a huge conflict for people is like getting this evening routine and getting dinner at a reasonable hour and um, having a balanced meal so that they can go the rest of the evening without snacking on like carby foods that are going to raise blood sugar. And then your body can't do that important work at night. You also don't sleep as well. Okay, so yeah, I'll call it. This is this. I, I'm so glad you brought this up because I tell you that this is not just a self help session for Anthony, but we eat too late. We eat too late, and I know that. So tell us why you should eat earlier. 
Yeah. So if you give your body a few hours in between that last meal to when you intend to be sleeping, you'll digest um, that food. You'll have your kind of glucose spike from your meal. Maybe you'll take a walk after dinner. That would be amazing. Um, And you'll have time to wind down and sleep. So now your body isn't digesting food and it can do this important cleanup work, it can fight inflammation. So your body naturally, another thing that happens during the day is the things that we do in our lives are inflammatory, whether that's stress, a workout, um, maybe going through the drive-through, whatever it is throughout the day. And if you're not digesting food, your body can instead work on, on beating back that inflammation. See, we've got to get better at this. Uh, and I think it's something that happens to a lot of people, right? You work later, um, and you eat later and you go to bed later. It's just, and it's a cycle. Um, but that's fascinating. So, okay. So eat earlier, eat better, um, get lots of sleep um, and an exercise. Oh, by the way, the New York times just the other day said, had an article that says you should take a walk after dinner, even two minutes. Nice. What you're talking I about right that. there. Right. Okay. So, right. so what Molly's alluding to is when you get physically active, that helps pull your blood sugar level back down in your body. And that's healthier. So it's a good way for to help jumpstart your metabolism is to mm. have physical movement shortly after you eat. Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. Okay, so add that to the list. All right, what else? Have, what other areas haven't we covered here? I mean, we're doing a pretty good job. But what other what other things should we do for the uh, hippocampus? Well, the other, well, exactly. The Anthony, the other relation of uh, tying sleep, diet, physical movement to brain health is that. You know, exercise itself, and and Dr. Miller was alluding to this physical movement. Uh, you know, whether it's strength training, aerobic training, that actually kicks off these growth factors, these trophic factors in the brain that have all sorts of good effects. Mm-hmm. So, brain-derived neurotrophic factor is one in the brain that actually supports both survival of the hippocampal neurons, the brain cells, and can actually also spur birth of new brain cells. You know, it's, it's more and more common knowledge, but we used to think that the brain was, you know, fixed at birth. You're born with however many brain cells you have and you just lose them. But in fact, we can actually grow more brain cells over our lives. And one of the key parts of that is to be physically active. So exercising spurs growth factors that leads to birth of new brain cells. And the key is you have to put those new brain cells to use to keep them alive. So it's not just exercising to get them, you got it. What, so what else do you, what else should we do? Go see Dr. Miller. <laughs> well, one of the exciting things we do, Anthony, here at PNI um, is that we actually do uh, a program called Fit Brain and dual tasking. Mm-hmm. So as they're exercising, they're also trying to engage in some type of cognitive training. And so an individual could do this at home by just even, let's say they're on the treadmill or they're walking their neighborhood or they're taking their, their usual run and try to generate words, like come up with as many words as you can that you associate with gardening, or come up with as many cities as you can think of in Europe, or uh, come up with as many you know words that begin with the letter Z. And by trying to create something new that you're doing a form of cognitive training and you're exercising, so now all of a sudden you're getting the maximum benefit of the exercise, the cognitive training, and creating potentially these new brain cells. 
So when uh, an individual client comes to see myself or Dr. Merrill or Molly, they may also stop and, um, you know, spend some time in our fit brain gym where they'll do a exercise routine plus some of the cognitive training um, that Molly and I are busy creating a curriculum for. So I ride my bike every day to work. Should I on my ride one, should I ride a different route every day? Would that help? And two, should I, should I start thinking how many words I can find that start with the letter Z? Absolutely. Uh, Is that the same? That's the same thing. so, So taking a different route on your bike would be great for your visualization and for your visual memory. Mm-hmm. And as you're taking that new route, we want you to be safe, right? So don't be scanning your environment more than you need to for safety. <laughs> but as you're scanning your environment, you might be noticing the names of new streets or stores or locations. And as you're noticing that, right, if you even just locked onto one or two new names hmm. and you tried to think of how I remember the name of that street, how I remember the name of that shop that I just drove by, then you would be more likely to Hmm. uh, be getting this dual tasking process engaged naturally. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, this is, this is going to sound, maybe this might be a little bit of a flyer here, but I was wondering, like, say you live in the same city in the same house for the same, you know, for years and years, like I have, is there has anybody looked at whether or not people who move to a new place, say in, in their 50s or 60s, a completely new city, has anybody looked at whether or not that has any impact on you know brain health? Because it would everything would then be novel, wouldn't it? I mean, well, many Anthony, things. you're 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 anticipating uh, a really a seminal work, a, a wonderful neuroscience report that came out it's just some years ago now, but uh, there are some scientists, uh, Dr. Tang, Ed Tang was one of them, was a, who's a grad school student at the same time I was in, in uh, UC San Diego. They looked at London cabbies. Mm. So London cabbies, to become one, you have to pass a test. It's called the knowledge. And yes. the streets of London, notoriously convoluted, complex, difficult to locate uh, where you are, where how to get somewhere. And so... It turns out that this process of learning the streets of London and then navigating them day after day, it was somebody jumps in your car and asks for a ride. Turns out it grows the hippocampus. And so these London cabbies, they have massive hippocampi, they have <laughs> massive brain structures. So, so you know, I, I know the podcast has been fun for you, Anthony, but if you really want to grow your hippocampus, you know, <laughs> career change. <laughs> Think about going to become a London cabbie. You could you could go for it. Or just change your bike route up. <laughs> I'm going to go with that, um, Dr. Miller. Uh, that just sounds easier. I, I, I can't drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> but no, what you're really alluding to, Anthony, is it would be something for, for interesting for us to study, honestly, in neuroscience is, you know, how many different novel environments add to our overall knowledge base, the expansion of our memory and such, right? Like you'll notice that often people will tell you when they change jobs, right? Or they move to a new neighborhood, there's a lot more learning that goes on for them in that first year. 
right? And so that is really a part of what we're encouraging everyone to do in some way. You don't have to change your house or change your job, but you do change your, your driving route or, you know, add to your um, hobbies, a new sport or a mm -hmm. new language or a new art. And by adding something new, then you're getting that opportunity, just like the London cabbies. That makes sense. New learning. Is the, is the opposite of that, that when people retire, they sort of decelerate and lose that stimulation? Really depends upon their choices. I mean, that's honestly why we're doing what we do is because we do meet a lot of people who are retiring or thinking about retiring or who have just retired and we are going over their whole lifestyle and we're mm. looking at like, what can we help you um, design and tweak so that you can live your better life in retirement? Because Dr. Merrill and I, for example, have had thousands of patients in common over the past decades and some of them retire and do nothing. Hmm. Even some of them are 55. And they decide from that day forth, they've put in 30 years of hard work. And they're going to do nothing from that day on. And by then, by 62, they're at our office. And, yes. and they've, done, they've been doing nothing for seven years and often have very serious cognitive decline. Really? In that very seven serious. years of just... Yes, we, we, we've seen many and these were brilliant people, engineers, wow. architects, and they worked hard. They truly worked hard. They're very smart people. But at 55, they said, I'm tired and I'm not going to do anything. They didn't do a hobby. They didn't read. They didn't walk. Is this, does, this get back to, does this get back to Dr. Merrill's use it or lose it? Yes. This is it, right? I mean, this is yeah. not... And it happens what, even at an early age. That's why I share with you the 55-year-old. That's, I mean, that, I, I just, as I said, I'm 57. Uh, look out. Um, by the way, my mother, she ran a small post office in Copper Mountain, Colorado for 25, 30 years. And she knew every, you know, mailbox number for every person in the community, right? And she knew the faces. She knew the numbers. She knew, I just, it was, and it was very stimulating. She had lots of, and then they, she had to retire at 75. <laughs> And she said it was the worst thing she ever did. <laughs> she was she she was just it's terrible because she was not ready. Yeah. I know. But anyway, um, so what do you do with a person who comes in at 55 and is in that kind of shape or at 62? Sorry. And is in that kind of shape, you know, where they've their brain is sort of decelerated out of this out of their career. What what how do you get them back? It's basically putting them to work, figuratively speaking. It's it's brain and body rehab. Hmm. So take a look at what does the day look like? What's the structure of your, of your daily routine? What does the week look like? Are there opportunities for purposefulness? Are there opportunities to be social? Are there, hmm. you know, th this whole infectious pandemic has been a real difficulty for all of us, uh, you know, finding those outlets of how do you join a social club? How do you join a social cause? How do you turn to volunteerism? I mean, our, our society at large is not good at becoming older in a healthful way. The, the, the odds are really stacked against, against people, but it, it does, it makes all the difference, both uh, for the body and the mind, to kind of take the time and effort to find a new purpose like with the transition of retirement. How do you, how do you make that successful transition 
to live your best life in the years ahead. Mm. You know, I see, I imagine, I see these ads for like um, trips with history professors from universities and other kinds of professors. And I imagine that something like that could be Absolutely. Well, actually, a lot of community colleges have a whole program dedicated to seniors. So even if there's a community college nearby or a senior center, they typically have different types of programs, including ones that involve travel. But something Dr. Merrill said was very important is he talked about socialization. And that's something we didn't spend too much time on. But if someone is listening to this podcast and thinking about what's the first step they might take, And maybe they're not yet ready for cognitive training or they're not going to go into a full-blown exercise routine yet. We hope they do. The very first step that everybody can take today is actually to socialize. And that can be as simple as going to the grocery store and actually talking to the grocery store clerk. That could be talking to your neighbor out by the mailbox. Or if you live in a planned community, going to the swimming pool and just learning someone's name, including Mm. the grocery store clerk, asking someone, where did, where are you from? What city were you born in? Learning those two pieces of information, right, would be novel stimulation for the moment. And then it could expand from there, especially, you know, actually creating relationships, friendships, (laughs) partnerships, volunteering then that would be having regular social stimulation and, and novel learning on a regular basis. So even those small interactions. Absolutely are very key. You know, uh, to your point, um, Dr. Merrill, about how we're, we're not set up in this society to age well, I think, you know, when Dr. Miller just talked about talking to the clerk at the grocery store, well, a lot of that's automated now. Yes. <laughs> right? And you're it's a machine. And so much... Yes. So many other interactions have been stripped out. Right. And I hear I read about how there's, you know, people basically, you know, very people have fewer and fewer friends. Yes. And I can imagine that during the pandemic that just went. You know. And that's true for even young people, Anthony, because they spend so much time online. They have fewer yeah. and fewer friends. Yeah. So what do we I mean, we got to fix that. Right. <laughs> because that social stimulation is very important, not only for the hippocampus, but also for the amygdala. Mm. Right. So because also how to regulate our emotions and how to react to others and have empathy for others and to be able to partner with our world so that we can be helpful Mm. rather than it all to be automated. Yeah, no, I think I just you could see it, you know, you could see a spiral here. Um, You know, I think this also doesn't this also play into this debate about um, return to office. Yes. Right. I mean, that's a big debate now. And I I again, I'm reading that. A lot of people are talking about, hey, you kind of stay away from the office at your peril um, because you're not getting that kind of stimulation. Oh, there's so much stimulation when you because there's random interactions when you're walking down the hallway. Right. So like Dr. Merrill works on the first floor, I work on the second floor. But if I'm headed down to a research meeting with him, I'm going to encounter three or four different types of people. I'm headed down to meet with him. Right. I might encounter another patient or client in the uh, elevator. I see a staff member I haven't seen in a week. I meet a new doctor that's a whole different specialty that's down the hallway. And especially if I take the time to say, oh, hey, I'm new to this building. I haven't met you yet. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's unanticipated. Random. Exactly. Yeah. And if I take the time to encode even just one piece of that information, 
right? Then I'm doing my novel learning as well. Interesting. Okay. So how to, just to wrap up here, how can people uh, access what you all are doing? Right. So our program that Molly and I head up is um, called Lifestyle at Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation. And um, you can find us by going on to Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation looking for lifestyle. But we also have a a phone number um, in case somebody wants to write that down so I can read you that phone number. It's 213-344-2037. And our um, website is pacificlifestyle.org. Pacificlifestyle.org. Okay. Yes. And then all the programs that Molly and I have been talking about. Um, including FitBrain uh, and the memory training, nutrition, lifestyle coaching are all, there's a menu of options there. Fantastic. Well, this is great. Um, I've learned a lot. I, I have my homework. Eat earlier. Take a different route to work on your bike. Take a different route to work. No, and, no, and notice things. I mean, that's just the mindfulness. Again, mindfulness and exercise are just everywhere now. Exactly. Yeah. For good reason. For good reason. Right. Yeah. We need it. We're all aging. That's for sure. And there's more and more of us doing that, right? Correct. I mean, the baby boom and the Gen X and. Well, the beauty is we're going to live longer lives, but we want to live them better with better yeah. intention. Yeah. Well, we certainly have more tools than we did even 20 years ago, right? A lot more tools. Yeah. All right. Um, Dr. Karen Miller, Dr. David Merrill, Molly Raposo. Thank you so much. We'll do it again. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.